Good evening from Southeast Asia. And now for something totally different. <laughs> Lots of you probably <clears throat> have followed our alienanalprobe.com alien podcast for years and years and years now. Um, I don't know, we got about 300 of them out there, something like that. Uh, they are at alienanalprobe.com and they are, they're accessible through there or stockphotosworldwide.com or through the RSS feeds, um, which don't have video, but our stuff does. Um, so we're doing a new thing. Really new. Brand new. More fun, maybe. Um, this will be episode or volume. One of the alien... No, no, no. <laughs> I'm so used to saying that. I, I'm going to trip up a lot. Volume one of the Southeast Asia Chronicles. <laughs> we'll do that for now. We might change them later. I don't know. Okay. Um, this is going to be fun. I hope. I hope it's going to be fun. This is going to be a series of podcasts, and I don't know how many. My guess would be somewhere between 5 and 20. <laughs> that really pins it down. Um, this is going to chronicle how I came to be in Southeast Asia, why I won't leave it, um, and all the good, the bad, and the ugly about it. First-hand experience over a decade. Man, what a journey. Okay, a normal person, a professional person, <laughs> somebody who gave a shit. Oh, by the way, these are just full of, full of swearing. You know, you, you can't handle it. Well, I'm sorry. <laughs> Go listen to Howard Stern. He swears more. Well, I don't know. I... Somebody told me he swore off of swearing. I don't know. He's a jackass anyway. I don't care. I mean, I, I love him, but I hate his fucking guts. <laughs> it's one of those deals. Um, anyway, lots of swearing here. Sorry, not going to change. I tried once, you know. No. <laughs> no. No. Um, anyway, a professional person would have created a comprehensive outline of all the subjects to be covered, you know, with subheadings and, uh, you know, chapters and stuff like that. Well, I ain't going to do that. Um, this has to come, this has to be stream of consciousness. It still has to be organized. And so the only way I can organize it is to do it chronologically from, from the beginning to the end. We're not at the end yet, but, you know, someday, <laughs> you know, unless the aliens come and inject me with uh, some kind of live forever juice, you know, then there will be an, an end. Um, I hope I'm here in Southeast Asia somewhere when that happens. I, I don't want to go back to the U.S. Sorry, I don't. I don't respect hardly any part of it anymore. It, it has killed my respect off over my entire life. I'm old now. I mean, I, I look, I look somewhat old. I'm far older than you think. 
really, <laughs> you would be, you would be, I don't know, surprised at the very least. Um, okay, so chronologically, first of all, what I'm going to do is, and the purpose of this, here's the purpose of this, first of all, let's set, set the foundation. The purpose of, of making these podcasts is that I know so many people, most of them guys, 90% guys, not all guys, 90% are guys, who are living out lives of quiet desperation. I can't remember who said that, but he was right. Uh, life in the U.S. is a life of quiet desperation. It is. Unless you are just incredibly lucky. Your whole life is going to be one of quiet desperation. On one front or on many fronts. Maybe on all fronts. Uh, I was luckier than most. I did cool things. And they occupied my brain, my sense of adventure. They, they, they took care of that to a very large degree for, for most of my life. Um, so I was luckier. Well, I was way luckier than most. But still, in the end, the U.S. just ground me down. All of Western, Western civilization ground me down. I couldn't take it anymore. And I wanted out. And I, I started to realize that. Well, hell, shit. I started to realize that at about age uh, five. I used to watch cartoons. Wait, when we first got a TV, well, no, well, we didn't have a TV. Neighbors had a TV. There, there was like one or two stations available. You know, you get the tinfoil just right. You could get them kind of sort. Anyway, every once in a while on cartoons, there would be some backdrop, some background of... Asian or Oriental countryside or cityscape or something. And I was transfixed and transported. I could hardly breathe. I just wanted to go there. Badly. I was just drawn into the TV. I just... Just wanted to go there. I wanted to be there. I, I, I just had to experience that. I don't know why. Maybe in a past life, uh, you know, God knows, I was Chinese. Who knows? Um, and so that's when it started, about age five. Maybe, maybe before that, I don't know. And it continued, that fascination with Southeast Asia continued my whole life. And I, I spent most of my life, most parts of my life, I spent thinking... Man, if I could just get to Southeast Asia, at the very least, it would be exciting, you know. And so that was in the very back, dark recesses of my brain. That was a dream. Now, most guys, I think, don't share that dream. Maybe they, maybe they kind of sort of do now when they're older. Uh, when they were younger, probably not. Probably not. But they share the weariness they feel with their lives of quiet desperation. Uh, most of them are living shit lives. They're not all, and not in every category. 
but significantly so. They have a job as unfulfilling as fuck. The wages are low. They can barely afford their cars. Um, they marry the wrong girl out of high school. She drags him down, doesn't encourage him, doesn't nourish him, doesn't support him. They got 2.3 kids, they have a divorce, they lose the house. Um, they struggle on some unfulfilling job for the next uh, 20 years. And they're just... They kind of want to die. They don't die because they're scared of what might come after. But the situation they're in, they want to end or change or get better. They, when they get older, they know it's not going to get better. Um, and they're just tired. They're weary to the bone of the shit. Their bosses are fucking morons, most of them. Bossy little fucktards. Um, cheat you every chance they get, just barely inside the law, you know. You go to get your paycheck and uh, huge swaths of it are missing. Going to finance uh, Hunter Biden's... Uh, sex parties and and you're just tired you're tired you're just tired in your bones you're tired of everything you're tired of women you you try to meet western women and they're unattractive and they're bitchy and they're loud and they're not all particularly that clean and they smell bad not all of them <laughs> but you know a pretty good percentage um, guys are unhappy with Western women, period. That's a goddamn fucking fact. Suck it up, ladies. Do better. If you want guys to like you, do better. If you can't do better, stay alone. Get a cat. Get 10. Get 20. Okay, I'm not going to go on an anti- female rant because some of them are good. I was lucky I had a good one. There are some, I, I know a very small handful of guys that have had really good ones or have now at this moment, Western women. Um, but the vast majority of guys, e even the guys who were smart enough or had the energy or whatever to go start their own business, um, tired of bitchy fucking customers and they're tired of government regulations that hamstring them every time they turn around. They're tired of the taxes that eat every little bit of goddamn profit they ever made. <sighs> Fuck. And at the end, or close to the end, we get up into our later years, <laughs> let's say. Um, some guys, a growing number, figure out how to get out, how to escape the fucking matrix. 
Um, most guys dream of it. Only a few attain it. There are a lot of guys who could attain it, but they're scared. They don't know where to go or what to do or how to live or if they can live or... Oh, God, they want out of there so fucking bad. They're ready to off themselves with a plastic butter knife, you know. Take a while to saw into the carotid with a plastic butter knife, but they're on the edge trying it. Oh, God, I feel for those guys because I was one of those guys. And I did escape. And you can. Most of you can. Most of you can. You just don't know it. Um, some of you, if you do escape, you are going to regret it. And you're going to end up thinking, God, Jesus Christ, I didn't know it was going to be like this. Oh, fuck. How do I get back to the U.S.? or the UK, or Canada, or some fucking place, you know, Germany, whatever, something Western. How do I get back there? Oh, God, please let me go back. <laughs> and and that's fine. Then you learn stuff. You learned a lot of stuff, probably. <laughs> really like a, you know, speed school of concentrated learning about life. Because you aren't, you, you aren't, if you've always been in the U.S. or a Western country, you have not seen real life. You haven't seen you're in the matrix and you don't know it. Well, maybe some of, some of you do know it. Some of you don't. Um, so this these podcasts are for you guys. And there are quite a few ladies who are who have adventuresome spirits. And they love Southeast Asia or Asia. And they want to experience it. Their passion for it probably is as strong as mine always has been. And they should do it. But I think they're much more timid than the guys. Because they're thinking, okay, I can afford the plane ticket. Okay, what country do I go to? What, 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 can, where, can I get a hotel? Where, how do I get a hotel? I can't, even, I can't speak Laotian. You know, what the fuck? Uh, where do I go? What do I do? Are the people friendly? Will they kill me? Will they eat me? Will they rape me? Will they steal all my money? And it's like, well, yeah, all of the above, you know. And it happens. But hopefully, this series of podcasts will explain to not just the guys, but to the ladies also. what they can expect if they do it, if they just step off the balcony on the 89th floor, say, next stop, Southeast Asia. What's going to happen? What's it going to be like? What can they do? How can they navigate? Um, that's the purpose of this stuff. I'm going to try really, really hard to answer those questions and, and, and give guys the, the parachute that they need, that they desperately need to get out of the fucking miserable shit life they might be in right now. Um, okay, so the way we're going to do this is I've got to give you a foundation. I don't like talking about myself. I, well, no, sometimes I do. 
<laughs> sometimes. Um, I've, but I've still, legitimately, I've got to give you an overview, a, a background on who the hell I am and what colored glasses I'm seeing the world through. Okay, so if you come here to Southeast Asia, any country, and you look at the world here, and you, and you see, and, and, you, and you perceive that it's different from what I told you, okay, go back to this tape, and, and remember, I'm telling you, I'm giving you the background on who I am, and that will tell you how I see things. So everything I'm going to tell you in all these podcasts is through those glasses, because I, I, I am, my experiences are what they are, and I am who I am, and I can't take those glasses off. I can, I can try, I, you know, I can do it a little bit, but not really. So you got to know who in the hell I am, so you know how I see stuff. So I'm going to summarize it as best I can. Um. I was born in the U.S. Got a horrible family. Horrible family. And I'm not going to go into detail on that. It was as bad as it gets. As bad as it gets. There was no pedophilia, you know. I lucked out in that regard. But every other fucking way, it was violent and drunk and irresponsible and miserable and lots of moving Lots of insanity. It's as bad as it gets. Um, we usually had food. You know, that was a saving grace. We usually had food. So that's what I got hatched into. Okay. Um, I hated my life and my family so much. I remember at age seven, going to my father and saying, look, uh, I want out. I want to go. I just want to go. I, I, I don't know what I'll do. I don't know where I'll go. Maybe I can sweep floors somewhere. I'll ride on freight trains. I'll go live with the bums. I'll steal food. I don't care. I just want to go. I want out of here. I want out of here. I want out of here. I want you to tell me you're not going to look for me. I was seven. I was fucking seven. And uh, my dad just laughed like, yeah, right. Well, what are you going to do? You know, yes, I'm not going to work out. And of course he was right. But that's how badly I wanted out of that family and that life. And, and that never changed through my whole life. That sentiment never changed. And uh, those people died off. And when I was told, I just said, oh, okay. So shit life. Lots and lots of you guys had shit lives. Some of you lucky guys had good lives. Um, good families. Maybe you still do. Lots of you don't. Um, I did bug out at 14. Just left. Just packed up a little bit of shit. Left. Stole a sleeping bag from my dad. Left. And I went hitchhiking around the country for years. Um, I hitchhiked um, probably 150,000 miles. That was the, the hippie era. Hitchhiking was okay. It was in. It was easy as pie. 
your your thumb was your lifetime bus ticket. And uh, usually when you got rides, people feel sorry for you and they'd feed you. You know, your skinny little 14-year-old runt piece of shit, they'd feed you. There were hippie enclaves everywhere. And you just show up at one, you'd be taken care of and fed. And um, It was high adventure for a 14-year-old. It was freaking high adventure. Um, I wandered around like that for quite a few years. I did meet up with some old family members in a, in a, in a central state, went back to school for a while. Hated it, just hated it, hated it, God. And uh, one day I went in to see the counselor and I gave him a list of all the facts that our history teacher had told us in class that were wrong. All the, all the dates that he had quoted. And I'd look them up and say, no, it wasn't 1854, it was 1869, you know, like that. And I just I showed him this list and I said, look, you know, I know you're not going to do this. I know you're not going to help me. I know you, there's nothing you can do, but I'm just, I'm just venting, you know, I just got to tell you, I want out of here. I, I want out of this school. I want to drop out. I want to formally drop out, you know, please, please, please. Uh, and this guy looked at me a very odd moment. I had talked to him a few times before, so we had a tiny little bit of rapport. And he looked at me, and he thought for a minute, and he said, you know, I have always held that there are a few people in this world who don't need school. And I thought, yeah, well, that's what I feel like, you know. Maybe it's a mistake, but I can't take it here one minute. You know, either you're going to sign the form and I'm going to walk out or I'm going to walk out. So what's it going to be? I couldn't stand the teachers. I couldn't stand the childish mentality, the stupid fucking kids. Um, that was uh, early 10th grade. And he looked at me for another minute and he signed the paper, slid it across, and he wrote down a number on another paper, gave that to me, and he said, here, call this number, they'll give you a job. Gotcha. Thank you. Out. Done and gone. Walked out. Called the number, got a job. Great job. Great boss. Did well. Restaurant business. Um, after a while, that restaurant shut down probably because the boss was so nice that he was not cutthroat enough to keep it above water. Uh, so they shut down and suddenly I'm adrift. I'm just adrift. Um, so at this point I'm 15. Um, with those distant family people that, that I was staying with, um, a lot of drinking, the, uh, the, the the father figure there was a pedophile and raping his boys for, well, since they were born, I suppose. I don't know how long. Uh, tried to get me interested, told him to fuck off. And from that moment on, our relationship was, to say the least, strained. And so it's time to get out of there. 
fucking pedophiles. God, I got. I'm really tired of pedophiles. I. I know a thing or two about them. I was taught about them by a friend who worked with them for the state. And uh, maybe I'll mention some stuff about them in here. Maybe I won't. If it's appropriate, I will. Whatever. So I'm adrift again. Just adrift. Just 15, just adrift. No money, no nothing. No prospects, no nothing. I, I could have gone and gotten another job, but it, honestly, it didn't occur to me. Uh, 15, 15 year old stupid little spud, you know. And I still had my stolen sleeping bag in my backpack and put it on, whiffed it. And I hitchhiked around the country for another while, another year or something. Um, the hippie movement. I know, God, I tried to be a hippie. I tried so hard to be a hippie, but I couldn't fucking stand them. They were just so whiny and limp-wristed. And couldn't do it. I couldn't, I couldn't fit in. I just... <laughs> oh, God. The hippie thing was beginning to wind down anyway, and it was becoming... Most of the communes were abandoned because nobody would work. You know, only, only 10% would work, and the rest of them loafed. That's why the communes didn't work, if you if you ever wondered about that. It's, it was communism, you know. Um, communism doesn't work because 10% work and 90% loaf. That's, you know. So, finding free room and board with the hippies got harder and harder and harder. And I was in San Francisco one night in the hate in the hate Ashbury, and a couple came through. Weird couple. And they had an old car, and they said, "Hey, we're going to Vancouver because we live there. We're Canadian. And uh, if anybody wants to go, you can, as long as you got gas money." And I thought, "Oh my God, Canada! That's the wilderness." That's adventure. I want to go see the wilderness. I want to see bears. I want to see shit like that. And so I said, well, you know, I got like $8. You can have it all. They said, get in. And I did. And uh, two other guys had a few bucks. Both of them were bald. And I thought, what the fuck? Why are you bald? You know, this is a hippie era. Why are you bald? Well, it turned out they were, uh, they were AWOL from the army or some damn thing. Didn't want to go to Vietnam. Uh, so they got in. And we drove all night to Vancouver, to the to the border. We got to the border, uh, stopped at customs. In those days, it was pretty lackadaisical. Um, and we were in the back seat, us three guys in the back seat, the, the guy and his girlfriend in the front seat, and uh, had Canadian, had Vancouver plates. And uh, customs guy shined a light in the back, and he said, you all from Vancouver? And the driver said, yeah. He said, okay, go on through. <laughs> you know, that was that. Um, so I went to Vancouver, hung around Vancouver for a while, stayed with those people a while, stayed with other people for a while. It was still a dog's life. It was, it was a, you know, what kind of life you're going to get? You know, you're 15, you don't have any skills. So you, think, you know, you can flip burgers, you know, you can do that really fucking well. Um, but that's it. That's all you can do. 
and you can't work in Canada anyway. You don't have any ID. You're, you're kind of fucked. <laughs> no, but still, I knew that I was getting closer and closer to quote unquote the wilderness. And so I just kept hanging around, hanging around, hanging around and uh, getting food where I could, staying where I could. And I was there quite a while doing that. Quite a while. I can't remember how long. Six months, eight months, something like that. And finally, I was doing some things in the in the, the old gas town bars. You can't even find a reference to gas town anymore. But in back in the day, it was a big thing. I was doing some things in the bars that I shouldn't have been doing. Uh, but I had to I had to get spare change to eat, so I did them. You know, had to do with carrying little bags of things from one bar to another. <laughs> um, and one night, when the bars closed, I was walking back to some kind of a hostel thing I was staying in, you know, designed for freeloaders like me. And some guy, some really well-dressed guy, a few feet in front of me, crossing the street in the crosswalk, and he slipped and fell down, knocked out. And everybody just walked around him. You know, I thought Canucks were a little better than that, but they weren't, at least not that night. And he's, he just lay in there and it's raining and he's in a puddle and, you know, I thought, what the fuck? What the fuck is this fucking shit? How can you just walk around it? And I stopped and I asked a couple of people to help me. Nobody, nobody would even look at me. And uh, I knelt down and kind of roused him and got him to wake up and he's all fucked up, face all bloody and shit. And I helped him up, and uh, he said his hotel was like a block away. And I helped him to his hotel, got him settled in, and he said, well, you know, God, you really, really did a nice thing for me, really. Uh, he, he was a logger. Um, he was on uh, vacation down from, uh, where the fuck, way up north next to Alaska someplace. And uh, he said, "Come on back tomorrow, and uh, and I'll I'll buy you a meal." I said, "Okay, one 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 more free meal." Okay, thank you, thank you, Great Pumpkin. <laughs> you know, that's a really nice nice thing. So I went to my hostel thing, and in the morning, uh, went back to his hotel, and he bought me the meal, and we ended up hanging out, and we liked each other. Turned out his dream was to live in the woods. Just you know. Grizzly Adams kind of thing. And I said, fucking Jesus, what a coincidence. So was mine. And uh, he had some money. He had about a thousand bucks, and that was a lot back in the 60s. And he said, let's go. Let's just fucking go. I said, okay. How, you know, he said, this money will last us a long time. So we just went. We just got on a bus or some damn thing. We went way up north. And I uh, got to a town, stayed in a hotel. In the morning, we saw a cab and we talked to the guy and we said, hey, do you know of anybody who might have a cabin in the woods for rent? And he said, no, no, no. I got a fucking real estate agent. What the hell? And then he stopped and he said, oh, wait a minute, wait a minute. I do, I do, I do, I do. I do know somebody. And uh, he said, get in, I'll take you there. So we got in and and it was fucking far. It was like half a day's travel. 
ended up on dirt roads and then trails. And I thought, oh, fuck, he's taking us out here. He's going to kill us. And uh, we got there, and he wanted like $100, which was, you know, a tenth of our money to live on, you know, retire on. <laughs> you know, that's probably that was in the back of our mind. I had to pay him the hundred bucks. And this old lady came out and uh, we said, uh, we heard you had a cabin for rent. And she said, no. And we're like, oh, fucking hell. We're gonna pay a hundred bucks to go back to town. Another hotel we can't afford. This is fucked up. And we talked to her for a couple of minutes and she seemed nice. And I guess we seemed nice to her. And uh, so she said, you know, I got that cabin right over there. You can rent that. And we said, how much? And she said, $6.25 a month. We said, sold. <laughs> we opened up the trunk. We get all our shit out, took it to the cabin. And that was our home for a long time, about three and a half years. Um, from there, we had just adventure upon adventure upon adventure upon adventure upon adventure. It was insane adventures. Um, I ended up getting a job working for her brother, Logan. He trained me as a faller. Uh, made some money. Uh, we fished. He had a tugboat. I learned about tugboats. Um, I noticed that there were shipwrecks all over the damn place on the beaches. And I thought, what the fucking fuck? There's value there, you know, something, there's value there. And so I went around and I, I got myself a, a crappy little boat and I started going around and getting these things and figuring out how to refloat them, get them off the beaches. And then I would tow them with my outboard motor for days and days and days and days to, to people's places. I remember this is really stinking remote. We were way past the end of the road. And uh, I started towing around to places where I knew people lived that had boats that they might be able to use the parts from these boats on. And sometimes I could sell them and you know, sometimes I couldn't. I'd tow them back into the, the bay off of their beach cabin and sink them. You know, it's like, well, I, did that. I just did that and I learned about boats and salvage and things like that. Three and a half years of that. Um, I also spent more than two years of that time working on again, off again, on a square rigged sailing freighter, pirate ship. And we would fill that turkey full of supplies down Vancouver. And we would head up the coast and stop at every Indian village and logging camp and sell whatever we could. Uh, we, we would, we would set up a regular store out on the decks, um, aisles and scales and cash register and the whole bit. And the people would come out to us and we'd sell them whatever we could sell them. And we would keep going until we got to Alaska. And then we would turn around 
and head back down. If there was anything left, we would try to stop along the way, places we hadn't hit, and sell it. And if there wasn't anything left, then we just went straight straight to Vancouver all the way down. And we did this every 30 days. We were, had to be on a schedule. Every 30 days, regardless of the weather, through every kind of goddamn gale and hurricane and every motherfucking thing. And there were some rough times on that boat. It was... Uh, well, to me, I mean, it was high adventure. I didn't realize how close to death we really were, but um, I was, I had to go up the rigging, you know, um, and deal, excuse me, with the square sails. Um, you can look at old pictures of people in the old days dealing with square sails. You, you, you got to have guys to go up, go up in the rigging. You climb the rat lines. You go up there. You go out on the yard arms. You, um, I got up there in the top of the top mast one night to do some damn thing, and it got so rough, I couldn't get down. I was up there about ten hours, I guess, before it calmed down enough I could get down. It was just dipping yard arms in the water and port and starboard. You know, just fucking horrible. Fucking shit. <laughs> it was high adventure. It was great stuff. High adventure. So, after all those years up there, never had any thought of leaving. I was home. I was home. That's that's where I was born to go. Southeast Asia, well, you know, that's cool too. I'll, maybe I'll go there someday, but for the main meat part of my life, um, Canada and Alaska, that's where I belonged. That's who I was. I did a lot of commercial fishing up there, um, a lot of logging, a lot of tugboat work, a lot of hiking, a lot of exploring, a lot of hunting, everything. This place was so primitive that the the landlady, um, said, well, I mean, she seemed ancient to us. She was probably, I don't know, 40. <laughs> and she was a lady of the woods. She she had a, a log cabin. She lived in a log cabin. No electric. I mean, we were so far beyond electric. You know, it was ridiculous. Um, wood heat and kerosene lanterns and stuff like that. And she raised goats and, and geese and things like that. She liked them. She loved them, you know. And the the lions, the, the mountain lions, would come and eat them pretty often. <laughs> you know, like, I don't know, like two or three times a month, it seemed like. And she hated him. Oh, God, it was a war. It was a, She swore a blood oath to kill every lion on the face of the earth. And so when the goat or two would come up missing, you know, really, really way too often, she would get a pillowcase. And she'd fill it full of 30-30 rounds. I don't know, not very many, probably 10 or 15. And a couple of battery-operated spotlights and a kerosene lantern. Um, she took the little glowing dots off of clocks and she glued them onto the sights on her 30-30 Winchester lever action. That's how she could see to shoot them at night. You had them at night. <clears throat> and uh, she'd take a little bit of water. You didn't need water up there because it was a spring or a creek or some damn thing about every 50 feet. You know, you just drank out of it. And she took some food. I don't know what kind of food she took. And, and a bedroll. And that was it. Now, she was a proper lady, a proper Canadian lady, and she dressed in a full dress, 
full dress. She was a biggish lady, <laughs> but she still wore a full dress, no matter what. Chopping wood, carrying wood, hunting lions, killing lions, gutting lions, didn't matter. Full dress. She had a proper lady's dress on all the time. And so, you know, about dusk, we'd see her down there packing up her pillowcase. <laughs> <laughs> chamber in a couple of rounds. They were putting, a, you know, loading the gun chamber around, and uh, we'd wave. And she had this uh, the way, the way well the way she hunted them. She had a bunch of dogs. Any kind of cat is terrified of dogs, and she had little terriers, little fuckers, you know, like chihuahuas. And I don't know how she had maybe ten or twelve, and she was always cycling them, training them how to hunt, because on every lion hunt, she would lose one or two <laughs> to the lion. Uh, so she had to keep more coming up through the ranks, you know, all the time, continual business, you know, training and training and training. And so she'd get her little yapping dogs and uh, they're all jumping around. Yeah, let's go. Let's kill us a fucking lion. Come on, come on, come on. And she'd just trudge off up the mountain and we might see her in a week maybe two weeks, and she'd come back with uh, whatever's left of that lion. Sometimes it took her a week to get one, you know. The, the dogs would the dogs would get, get their scent and chase them, and the lion would run for a little bit, and he would hear, you know, 12 dogs, and he'd think, oh, fuck, this is really fucking bad. Uh, I'm not going to run forever. Let's see, there's a tree. I'll just climb this tree, and uh, those dogs can't get me. Ha ha, you motherfuckers. And so the, the lion would climb the tree at about three leaps. You know, he's up there 40, 50 feet. And the dogs would get to the trunk of the tree and, and circle around, yipping, 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 yipping. And, and the lion's thinking, fuck you. You know, he's got his middle claw out. Like, fuck you, you little cockroaches. You know, I can stay up here for a week. How about you? <laughs> and the um, landlady would uh, take out her little flashlight and charge up those little green dots <laughs> from the face of her clock. And then she'd shine the uh, little spotlight thing on the lion up in the tree. And she could see him re really clearly in the sights because they were glowing green now for a minute or two. <laughs> and pop, got him. <laughs> the lion would fall down 30, 40, 50 feet to the ground. And the dogs were on him. Oh, they're just fucking on him, you know like an ant, ant pile on a grasshopper, you know, oh God. And of course they, very often they were still alive to some degree, they were dying, but they were still alive and they're fighting for their life and they'd, they'd off, you know, one or two or three dogs, sometimes four. And I don't know what she did with them, she probably ate them too, I don't know, but. Anyway, she'd get the dogs off and she'd dress that turkey up. And, uh, she kept the hides. She kept all the hides. Her whole cabin was just covered, every wall covered with lion hides. Beautiful lion hides. Oh, my God. And uh, she'd pack up the meat in the pillowcase, I guess. She never had any kind of a backpack. I guess everything went in that pillowcase. It was a pretty heavy goddamn pillowcase. Must have been. And anyway, she trudged back to the cabin, and then she'd share the meat with whoever because she didn't have any proper way to keep it unless it was winter. And... Uh, it was okay. It wasn't bad. 
I remember she got one that made the entire area sick as hell, but we we never knew what that was about. It, it was it had some sickness or some damn thing. <laughs> anyway, so I stayed there for a long, 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 long time. Well, that was my that was that cabin was my home base for all the time I was in Canada. Even if I was off doing other things, you know, working on the square rigger or or doing whatever. And I lived, I still lived in a bunch of different places all up and down that coastline, all the way to Alaska. But I still kept that cabin. It's, you know, $6.25 a month, you know, you can't let that go. It was a nice little cabin. It was a little one-bedroom. Nice cabin. I could have lived out my life in that thing. Um, and then anyway, the, uh, the square rigger people got a hold of me and said, hey, you know, you need to come on full-time. We've got to have you. Good. There's nobody else experienced. We've got to have you. You know, you just got to come on here all the time. So I did. I still kept the cabin, but I went on the big boat and, and just stayed on it all the time. And finally, one day, um, I was in, I guess you could call it sort of like my hometown there, and uh, walking around doing something, and the cop went by, and he said, Hey, 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 um, what's your name again? And I told him. I said, oh, yeah, yeah, we, we got a message from Vancouver. Um, your visa expired like a long, 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 long time ago. <laughs> and you got to go to jail now. So I said, oh, fuck, Jesus Christ, what the fuck, what the fuck, what the fuck? So they took me to jail right then. And uh, next morning they flew me to Vancouver and uh, they charged me with overstay, just basic overstay, which, you know, anybody who travels, you 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 experienced that. Um, and then they sentenced me to three months in, well, first in the city jail, which was pretty nice because we had the run of the kitchen all night. <laughs> and they had great, great food in there. And we just stuffed ourselves. And also they left the door open to the street. So after we got stuffed, we just went out and wandered around, went to, you know, restaurants and shit like that with our prison clothing on and stuff. And, uh, you know, in the middle of the night, we got tired. We came back, we go to bed in the cell. You know, it was a pretty fucking good deal. <laughs> because the, even the guards, they thought that immigration, the overstay was just fucking bullshit. You know, they, they just, they, thought, they knew it was just bullshit. It wasn't a real crime in those days. I'm not sure it still is, but, you know, the government would think you're a goddamn fucking cat murderer, you know. So, they sentenced me to three months, and after that, I did a few weeks in the city jail, and then I had to. Go, they transferred me to what turned out to be the equivalent of the BC fucking penitentiary, and that was the real deal. That was a real prison. Uh, it was bad. It was fucking bad. Even, you know, Vancouver or Canada tends to be pretty humane, but that was fucking bad. That was a bad place. And uh, I stayed there, and and. Uh, <laughs> At the end of it, they came and, and said, um, okay, it's time for you to go. You've been, your three months are up, time for you to go. And, and, they, and they said, why didn't you just pay the fine rather than sit here for three months? I said, what fine? What the fuck are you talking about? What fine? And they said, well, your fine was $250. All you had to do is pay that. And you could have walked out. I said, nobody fucking told me that. I didn't know that. What, you, you just, I've been sitting here for three fucking months. I could have paid and I actually had that money. Um, so anyway, 
they took me to the border in a van and said, uh, for some reason, we don't know why, but for some reason, the Immigrations has decided that they're going to make an example out of you. And um, most of the guys that we deport, you know, they're back like the next day, next week, whatever. Get a visa, they can come back. With you, they made an example, probably because you were working here. And you can't ever come back. Ever. In your lifetime. Uh, and I said, well, that's fucked. And they said, yeah, it's fucked. And so they took me to the border and uh, went through an immigration building down there. And then they came to a big steel door and they opened it and they pushed me through and the door closed behind me and I was in a parking lot. And I was in America. And what I felt at that moment, I had to walk across a parking lot to get to a place where there were some buses. It was a big parking lot, like 30, 40 acres, something like that, big one. And what I felt when that door slammed behind me, what I felt was that I had entered into hell. It was Dante's Inferno. I felt it. It was a palpable thing in the air. There's nobody around me. Nothing going on. But what I felt was insanity and chaos. After, after living in God's garden most of the time for, for three and a half years, walking into the U.S., it was insanity and chaos. It was hell. It was Dante's Inferno. And I wanted to die. I couldn't turn around and go back through that door. Nothing I could do. I had to walk forward into the U.S., And that was one of the lowest moments of my life. God, that was a sad thing. So I did. I walked forward, got on the bus, went down, found some family, stayed with them. Had no idea what the hell I was going to do. Um, got a job doing some damn thing. Making pennies, paying high rent. My girlfriend, my Indian girlfriend from Canada, <clears throat> I believe her tribe was Klahani, but I might not be pronouncing that correctly. Uh, she got lonely and came down. Indians, Indians have a dual citizenship from that region, so she could go back and forth willy-nilly. You know, there's, wish the fuck I had. She came down, we got married, and uh, we ended up, in a logging town where I went logging and then I went commercial fishing and then I got into a, a sawmill business and I stayed at that for a couple of years. Uh, then I bought a sawmill myself and made really good money for a while, a year. And then I thought, man, well, if I had two of them, I'd make twice as much money. Well, I bought another one and then I made half as much money. <laughs> so, uh, life lesson, you know. Fucking shit. So, I then got into a helicopter logging operation. I I was doing some work for this, oh, for a warehouser, for a warehouser. Um, 
and I, they had a helicopter logging operation outside of town, and I was doing some work for them. And the, the foreman of that operation, um, the deal was that on fly days, on the days that we brought the helicopters in and, and flew out the logs or, or whatever, um, the foreman had to hang on the cargo hook of the helicopter. And the helicopter would fly him around because somebody had to be on the ground to hook up these slings of logs. And a lot of times the cutters didn't show up that day or whatever. So the, so the foreman just had to sit on the hook. Now it was a bell-shaped thing. And you stuffed it between your legs and you crossed your legs over it. And you hung on with one hand and you smoked your cigarette with the other hand and they... And you, and you did a circular motion with your cigarette hand and, the, and they just jerked you up off the ground and off you were at 90 miles an hour. Um, the, the way that thing was set up was that once, they, once you hooked up the sling of logs, you'd get off the thing and the helicopter would pick them up, fly them to the landing, and the pilot had some buttons on the, collect, on the uh, cyclic. And he pushed one button. These were old Vietnam birds, and there were buttons for rockets and machine gun and this and that. You know, there were buttons for everything. And so he would push the button, and it would release a little electromagnetic hook down there that would release the cable, and the logs would fall down onto a pile. And then he'd go back and uh, and get the next load of logs. Okay. There was also an electric electromagnetic hook on the belly of the helicopter, so that if he got in trouble. And he was, well, that was part of the reason. That was half of the reason. If he got in trouble and he, and he couldn't maintain altitude or something, or he lost an engine and he's going down, you didn't really want that cable, you know, maybe 150-foot cable. You didn't want that hanging up in the tree, in the trees, to, to fuck you up on your, on your way auto-rotating into some little spot, you know, a little clearing. And so there was another button that you could release that whole cable from the belly of the helicopter and, and uh, <clears throat> the pilot would just squeeze that button on, on the on the joystick, you know, and, and the cable would drop. Um, he did that one day, except he squeezed the wrong button and the foreman was on the hook. <laughs> and he landed in some really dense brush and for a few days they thought they might pull him through it, but they didn't. He died. So I moved on up the chain, became the foreman of that thing. And uh, we did that for a while. Everything was fine. And then one day I was down in a canyon. Um, and I was slinging up a load. And the helicopter was hovering above me. And all of a sudden he wasn't hovering above me anymore. He was on me. He was just fucking on me. And... Uh, just knocked me the fuck out. And he he crumpled into the brush, you know. And, um, he got out and looked at me and said, oh, well, fuck, he's dead, you know. <laughs> and uh, um, so he hiked out and hiked all the way to the landing where there was other helicopters. He got another helicopter. He came back. I think he had a friend with him. Or another pilot, something, I don't know. And uh, they had a cargo hook dangling from that thing and they and they spotted me 
And they took the cargo hook and, the hook and they thought, well, you know, let's see if he's really dead. You know, maybe he's not. Sometimes they're not, you know. I was just covered with blood. Head was fucking caved in and shit like that. So they took that cargo hook and, and started knocking me in the chest with it, bouncing it off off my chest to to see if they if they can make me move. And I remember waking up, kind of, sort of, I was all groggy and fucked up. And I just I was barely conscious, and I thought, oh fuck, oh fuck, oh fuck, I, I must be camping somewhere, and a bear is eating me. Oh son of a bitch! And I just woke up fighting, just battle mode you know, to the death, fight that fucking bear. And I was punching that thing in the head and punching and punching and punching. It wouldn't go down. It wouldn't leave me alone. I thought, oh, fucking God, that's fucking terrible. And uh, then, of course, they realized that I was alive. And that's my last memory was fighting that bear. <laughs> I, don't think, I don't think I figured out it was a hook. At that moment, I didn't figure that out. I just thought, I, I thought he ran off or something. You know, like, oh, I kicked your ass, didn't I? <laughs> and um, so then I didn't have any more memory after that for a while, for a few minutes. And they said, after I killed the bear, <laughs> you know, which wasn't really a bear, um, I jumped up. I never even looked up at them. And I started running around slinging up more logs. <laughs> I have no memory of that whatsoever. And for quite a while I did that, like five minutes. And they're, they're trying to hit me with that hook again, you know, to, to try to get my attention. Say, look, 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 you know, come on, come on, come on, it's time to go. <laughs> and finally, I don't know, I guess I came around or something. I, my head cleared. I don't know what happened, but I realized, oh, there's a helicopter up there. Let's see. Is it time to hook up? So I would try to grab the hook, and he kept jerking the hook away from me, so I couldn't. And then, uh, I don't know, they were pointing at me or some fucking thing, and then I realized my vision was blurry, and I put my hand up, and I came away just covered in blood, and I thought, oh, oh fucking hell, something happened. <laughs> and uh, so I threw the hook between my legs, and they flew me up out of the canyon and over to the landing, and and uh, put some kind of, somebody had a t-shirt or some fucking thing wrapped it around my head and they flew me into the hospital. It's quite a ways, about 50 miles. And uh, waited around, the hospital stitched me up and I went back to work, finished the shift. And the pilot, he was a Vietnam pilot, straight out of Vietnam. Um, he had been shot down, I think six times in Vietnam and he had three other engine outs, so he had th three other uh, auto rotations that didn't really work out all that well. So he'd he'd gone down nine times, and but he was an ace. He was a fucking ace. He he had he had carried out the second highest number of guys wounded in Vietnam. Second, just before he left, uh, some guy beating by two or something. And we got to be really close friends. And he kept saying, "God, he just felt so bad, so bad about." <laughs> crashing on, on my head, you know. Oh, no, we have a Windows malfunction. No, we don't. It's still working. Fuck you, Bill. Um, how about if I teach you to fly? Make up for that. Yeah, that's a deal. <laughs> so for the next, uh, I don't know, couple of years, three years maybe, I got to fly. We, we finally moved up to a nice turbine, Alouette 3. Alouette 2? 3. Alouette. 
by the way, three, I think. Nice turbine and uh, nine passenger. And, um, so for the next few years, I got to fly all the ferry flights in that. And uh, regrettably, I did not, I, I never could, got to do any external load with it. I sucked at landing. I could take off and fly around, but I fucking sucked at landing. You know, I, you know, I needed, <laughs> basically, I just got the ferry flights, you know, point A to point B. That's what I got. I didn't get to land very much. <laughs> so anyway, I learned to fly that way. Straight to helicopters, not no other experience from anything before that. Um, and then he came into the, I still had the mill business. He came into the mill business. Uh, we started using the one helicopter to get our own wood for the mill, stuff like that. And it was not a bad deal. We were making money. It was okay. Um, and then there was a period where it was the off season and he wanted to go down to uh, Arizona and, and fly uh, crop dusting. He, he did that pretty much every year. So he went down there for going to be a month and a half, something like that. He went down there and uh, they, they do that in the middle of the night because the winds are less. You can't have winds when you're crop dusting because it'll blow the poison onto crops that aren't supposed to have that kind of poison, you know, stuff like that. And so he was down there doing that. You know, you, you start about 2.30 in the morning. And uh, he got up one night fully full of, full of bug juice. And that wasn't a turbine. That was a goddamn fucking little recip. I think it was a 12E, something like that unreliable little motherfuckers. I think they I think they were running Franklin engines or some goddamn thing. They're just fucked. Um and he got up one night, cracked an engine, and it was dark, so he couldn't see how far down it was or anything at all. And he got into auto rotation. He was you know, he was fucking good. He was good. Even fully loaded, he got into a into a stable auto rotation. And he's auto-rotating down, thinking, well, God, I wish I could see the ground, wish I could see the ground. Well, he didn't have to see the ground because he hit the fucking high-tension leads. And uh, that was that. Killed him. So my heart was not in flying or logging or mill work or anything after that. I just didn't have the heart for it. I didn't want to be there anymore. And... Um, so we sold everything. I bought another commercial fish boat, moved to a place across the state, and went fishing sharks. And I did that for quite a while, several years. And in the early days, it was pretty goddamn good. There was virtually no competition. There were plenty of sharks. Uh, it's good money, really stinking good money, really good money. And uh, you could pick and choose your days. You could pick and choose your weather. And uh, life was good. Life was nice. And what started to happen was lots of other boats saw that my life was nice. And so they started getting into it. And they actually fished down the sharks to the point where nobody anymore was making any kind of a reasonable living. Our boats were going into disrepair and it was fucked up. And they, they would, most of them didn't know how to fish sharks. They would buy up all the bait, take all the bait out and just squander it 
and there was a limited finite amount of bait. So half the time I couldn't get bait anymore because these fucking yahoos said, these were school teachers and mill workers mostly, not fishermen. Just looking for extra money. Hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of them. Um, and they dragged down that fishery to the point where I couldn't make a living at it anymore. They, they, they weren't either, but they were mill workers and school teachers, so they didn't have to. This was just a supplement, you know, if they made a hundred bucks a week, net profit they were, they were fine. That's just beer money, you know, that's all I cared about. I had to make a living and I couldn't any longer. But what I noticed right about that same time was that about every other goddamn day that we came in from the fishing grounds at night, there would be some boat up ahead of us shooting fucking flares into the sky, screaming on the radio, mayday, mayday, mayday. And the first 100 or 200, 300 times, um, I would I would alter course a little bit to where the flares were and pull up to them and say, oh, God, what's going on? You're sinking? You know, what the fuck? Where's the fire? What the fuck? And they're just, oh, no, uh, we were just out of gas and my wife was scared. Hundreds, hundreds of times of that. And uh, so I'd put a line on them and drag them in because I'm going there anyway. You know, their boat's not going to slow my boat down. And so I'd get them into the marina and uh, drop them off. And they'd say, thank you. Oh, my God, you saved our lives. And No, I didn't save your life. You know, get a fucking clue for Christ. Fucking Jesus. And then they just leave, go over to my slip. And they stayed in their slip and whatever. And that was beginning to become all that time um, at least three or four days a week and finally I did that one day some fucking lawyer or something and his trophy wife and they had run out of fucking gas because that calculation of how many gallons you burn per hour and how far you're going to go and stuff like that and your speed that's fucking beyond them you know they can sue people and ruin their lives but they can't calculate that um, so anyway, they were out of gas and I hooked them and I, I had gotten to the point where I would just cruise slowly by them, say, do you want a line or not? And if they're, if they're, yeah, 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 please, please. I would toss it over to them and then I would go back to, uh, you know, pretty much full power. Had a lot, nice long nylon line. So it was really stretchy like a rubber band. And either they would get it hooked on to some forward bit by the time it came to the end of the line or they wouldn't. And I didn't fucking care anymore. I hated them so much. Uh, they were out there stealing our gear all the time because they thought it looked pretty and they would take it home and put it in their rec room, you know, and shit like that. And it was just a constant battle with uh, yachtsmen, pleasure boaters, and fucking vermin like that. And so I would throw them the line and go back to cruise RPM. And if they got it hooked up, they did. And if they didn't, I just kept going. I'd pull the line in as I went. Uh, if they did get it hooked up, then, you know, they'd get a nice strong pull there for a minute before the spring went out of the line. And I'd drag them in and I'd sort of take them into the marina and push them towards a slip, you know. Figure it out, motherfuckers. And then I was gone. I just had nothing but disgust for them. Anyway, so this one night, I hauled in that lawyer and his stupid wife. And... Um, they said, thank you, thank you, thank you. And I said, whatever, whatever. And 
went home, and it was about a month later, something came in the mail from such and such fucking law firm. And I thought, oh, cock sucks. Somebody's fucking suing me for something. Opened it up. It was a check for $50. And it turned out to be from that guy. He had somehow tracked me down. Boat numbers, I suppose. I don't know. And a little light bulb went off in my brain. Uh, and I thought, oh, well, $50 is a fucking insult for what I did for you, but I'll take it. I'll have a pizza. And uh, from this moment forward, you cockroaches are mine. <laughs> I traded the boat off on a tugboat and uh, went into the salvage and rescue business. Just, just like that. Um, I hired divers to bring stuff up from the bottom and they fucked it up every single time, bar none, every single time. No matter what divers I hired, they fucked it up royally. And I didn't want to dive. I didn't want to go underwater ever, except in the pool. But I got to the point I had no choice whatsoever. I just had no choice. So I had to go learn commercial diving. And then the boats started to come up properly, reliably. Um, so I got very, very heavy into commercial diving and towboating and rescue. Pulled the Coast Guard off the beach twice. Fucking wieners. Um, I watched them kill people, the Coast Guard. I watched them kill people. I did a whole tape about that. Some tape back. It's, it's labeled. You can go back to the alienanalprobe.com list. Look for the word Hevener. That was the name of one of the divers they killed. Fucking killed him. Pretty goddamn close to a murder. Certainly manslaughter. Certainly manslaughter due to their incompetence and unprofessionalism and stupidity. But uh, anyway, so I came to pretty much loathe the Coast Guard. But for the next some number of years, we did uh, 321 rescues and 131 shipwrecks raised and made stupid amounts of money. Stupid amounts. So this would have been uh, late 70s uh, on, on, on dives that were as deep as my gear could go. Um, I was making 2600 an hour with a one hour minimum I could do two a day. So pretty good money. I was getting 10 grand a day for the tub. Uh, pretty good money. And I, I had whole stacks of checks that I just didn't have time to send in. That's certainly the most money I ever made, the most money I ever dreamed of making. And I was fucking good at it. It's the, it's the one thing I was born to do. It's the thing I was most born to do. Um, I got to the point after some years, though, where I had been so good, I was a mini legend. But I knew it couldn't last. I knew that someday, somehow, I was going to make a mistake and it was probably, possibly going to be a fucking big one. Maybe somebody would get killed. Because it's inevitable when you got that many variables, you're out and it's blowing 100. I mean, literally, we were out there blowing 88, 88 knots, so that's 110 or whatever. Um, on that particular job, the... Uh, 
Coast Guard had been called out to save some people. They went halfway, said, fuck no, we're going to lose the boat. Uh, turned around, came back. Coast Guard command said, no, no, no. You turn around again, you turn around again, you go back there, you're the fucking Coast Guard. That's all they got. You get out there. You get... And they had this really heated yelling argument over the radio. The, the skipper of the Coast Guard boat, it was 81, I think, or 80, 81 or 80, 80 maybe 82, I can't remember, cutter, big cutter. And they're just screaming at each other over the radio. And I thought that was pretty goddamn unbecoming. In the end, the uh, the captain said, no, no, I'm captain of the boat. I'm going to lose the boat. We're going to die. We're turning around. We're going back to port. Um, we passed them halfway out. We're, we we went out, got the people, saved them, saved the boat too. Um, and the Coast Guard was sitting warm and snug at the fucking dock, sipping cocoa. Now, after... A few hundred experiences like that with the United States Coast Guard. I don't have any good thing to say. No, that's not true. I did. I have seen him do good work. Um, Twenty-five percent of what they did was good, competent, professional work. Maybe just dumb luck. I don't know. Seventy-five percent was flawed in some way. Twenty-five percent was fatally flawed, where they killed people. They lost boats due to incompetence and unprofessionalism. And I don't have any good thing to say about nothing. Now, that is, that's the Coast Guard in the lower 48. The Coast Guard in Alaska is a different animal. Those guys are good. They're fucking good. I'm pretty sure they saved their very best crews for Alaska. The people got seawater in their veins to go to Alaska. The people that got uh, Campbell's chicken soup in their veins, they stay in the boat for you. So I'm, I'm not talking about the Alaska guys. Those guys are fucking good. I respect them. I like them. I never saw them do a stupid thing. Lower 48, 75% of what they did was stupid. Maybe the lower 48 is just a training ground for see who can cut it and who can't. I'm not sure. But Jesus goddamn Christ. I'm not going to tell those stories. That's for another, another tape, probably sometime. Actually, I did. I wrote a book about it. Um, I don't know if it's on stockphotosworldwide.com. I'm not sure I put it on there or not. Um, so, after some number of years, I got scared. I got scared that I was going to make a big mistake. We were in the newspapers. Um, couple of times a week and had a big name and respect. When I went to the Coast Guard station, um, usually with a tug, they would move their boats to give me a preferred spot to moor. And they would send people down to escort me up into the office and bring me coffee and brownies and donuts. And I never told them what I thought of them. <laughs> Um, and I didn't want to lose that. I didn't want to make a mistake on a dark and stormy night and kill somebody. And so I sold it and bailed. And that was the right decision. As much as I missed that work when it was going well, and I missed the money, <laughs> Oh, that was the right decision. It was time to get out. You know, get out on a high note. 
And that's what I did. Um, from there, we're going to go about 13 more minutes here. From there, um, I had a lot of money after I sold it. I had a lot of money. And we just traveled for a while, tried to figure out where to live. I didn't want to see the ocean again ever in my lifetime. So we moved inland and moved here and moved there and moved all around the goddamn place. Uh, bought a little airport in Idaho. Um, realized I didn't like Idahonians or whatever the hell they're called. Um, got out of there. Went to New Mexico, got robbed nine times because we had stopped the Mexican cartels from selling drugs over the counter in one of our restaurants. Um, the, I had spent a couple of years in federal law enforcement, which I, I didn't, I didn't insert that here. I actually I just forgot to. Um, we started running, running into really, really, really hard time, hard core corruption problems in New Mexico, because I was stupid enough to think that I could stand up against the Mexican cartel. <laughs> yeah, right. And, um, when it got really, really bad, I said, okay, fuck you people, you're done. And I called up to some of my old people up in a, in a central state, said, hey guys, I got a problem. I need help. I need a fucking team down here. I got names and dates and I got the whole work. I got the whole dossier. I'm, I want a team down here. Let's pop about a hundred of these motherfuckers right now. You know, hopefully we can do this within a week. And um, I was talking to the head of the biggest law enforcement agency in that state. And he said, uh, nope. <laughs> he said he grew up there. His judge, his father had been a federal judge in the town close to where we were. A uh, Mexican cartel killed him. And that was just the tip of the iceberg. He said that his family is not allowed to enter the state of New Mexico. Uh, he will not drive through the state of New Mexico. If he had an accident on the border, he would not get airlifted to a hospital in the state of New Mexico. It, it was that it was that big of a deal to him. And he just said, nope, we're, we're not going to touch New Mexico. It is, for all intents and purposes, Mexico. And I thought, oh, well, then <laughs> imagine my chagrin, <laughs> you know, because I thought I thought I had this ace in the hole. Take care of these fucks. And I didn't. I had nothing in the hole. I had nothing. I had a you know, piece of toilet tissue held under the faucet. You know how? how <laughs> you know, that's not really very formidable. Um, right about that time, we had suffered our ninth uh, robbery. All of the all the robbers were known to us. Lots of witnesses. Had on security footage a little bit. And they'd come to court again and again and again and, and say not guilty. And the judge would say, yep, not guilty. And, and we'd say, well, wait, 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 wait a minute, wait a minute. What, what a, we got video, we got witnesses, we got, they didn't even wear masks for fuck's sake, you know. And the judge would say, you're out of order, get out of the courtroom. Yeah, that's how bad it was. And we were, I had been bucking that stuff pretty hard. 
and the corporation that owned our restaurants uh, had called in a whole bunch of different private investigators, teams, and one by one by one, they just got scared off. I don't think any of them lasted a week. They started poking around and the local government police just said, uh, you know, get out, we're going to kill you. And they just got out. And finally, they brought in a, a PI um, from another state owned and run by retired FBI agents. And we thought, oh, yeah, there you go. Booyah, we got them. We got them now. And they lasted a, a month or six weeks, something like that. And they were digging, 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 really pissing people off in the cartels. And um, one night in the restaurant, the phone rang and my wife answered it. And the voice said, go to the phone booth at such and such a corner. Now. And wait for a call. So she thought, huh, okay. She was like, three feet tall, you know. No, she was five, one or something like that. But God, she was fucking feisty German girl. And she, at that time, things had gotten so bad, she was carrying a 10-gauge sawed-off shotgun everywhere she went. Kept it under the counter at work. She kept it in her car. She walked to and from her car with this 10-gauge, 10-gauge. Um, so she picked that sucker up, chambered around, walked down to this phone booth. This is, this is like 10 o'clock at night. And she stood there and the phone rang. She answered it and it was the, the owner of the PI agency, that one of the retired FBI guys. And he said, um, okay, I want you to listen to me. Don't talk, just listen. Something like next Tuesday night, there's going to be a raid on your ranch outside of town. And there's going to be, they're going to find a bunch of drugs in your home and you're going to try to escape. And they kill all three of you, your son too, your eight-year-old son. They're going to kill you all. Uh, get out right now. Tonight if you can, or tomorrow. And so we did. Yeah, New Mexico. So you want to ask me about Mexican fucking cartels? Ask away. I know mountains about them. Can't touch them. They're untouchable. They had boasted to us when we were pushing on them hard. They had boasted to us. They, they just laughed. They said, look, we got connections all the way to D.C. You cannot touch us. No federal agency can touch us. Nobody can touch us ever. And I just laughed because I thought, oh, yeah, right. <laughs> it turned out to be absolutely true. So another nail in the coffin of America for me. Okay, so that's podcast number one. That's some of my background. So I want the listener to understand the things that led up to my disgust with America and the things that led to me leaving. Some people got similar stories. Some people's stories aren't so bad, but they still want to leave. Uh, some people have had just as much trouble, but in different contexts. Um, 
I still got some family in the U.S. I, they want out. They've got a business that requires them to stay in the U.S. Uh, I don't know what they're going to do. I don't know too many people who want to stay there. Very, very few people that I know of want to stay there. I know that every year the, uh, the numbers of people renouncing their U.S. citizenship hits a new record every year. It's not a big number, but it's up every year. People are just tired, tired, tired of the bullshit. And there's bullshit around the world, too, not only in the U.S. Um, it's, a, it's a case of this bed is too soft, this bed is too hard, this bed is just right. Um, maybe you'll never find one that's just right, but maybe you'll find one that you can sleep on, you know, in some kind of way. And that's all of us guys roaming around Southeast Asia and, and some other countries, you know, South America. Uh, that's all we're doing. We're looking. We, 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 we've been around enough now. We know we're not going to find one that's just right. We're just hoping to find one that we can sleep in. Uh, America is not on that list anymore at all for us. We're done. We're done with it. Um, by the way, for you guys on Social Security, you can... Last time I looked up the law, renounce your citizenship, you don't have to pay taxes anymore, and you'll keep your social security. The only thing is, if you ever want to go back there and visit, you know, Alaska or whatever, your kids, uh, you can't, you have to get a visa. Maybe they'll give you one, maybe they won't. But the other thing is, you would have to have pretty much citizenship in another country to get a reliable passport so that you could go anywhere at all. And citizenship is getting harder and harder and harder to get unless you've got a lot of money. If you got a lot of money, you got a whole bunch of options. You can just buy citizenship. But if you don't, I mean, I'm, I'm talking half a mil that you can just drop. If you don't have that, um, it's really, really hard to get citizenship. I, if I had stayed in one Southeast Asia country since I got here, I would have citizenship now. I, I could have gotten it in a couple of different countries, but I just kept moving, 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 moving. Uh, and I, and I kind of regret that part of it. I, I should have, I, I should have put that into my plan. I could have citizenship in a couple of different countries and passports from those countries. I could renounce, and I'd be really, really fucking happy because there's nothing there anymore. I, I would miss Alaska, but fuck, I'd go to Canada. If I want to see woods and trees and bears, I'd go to Canada. Fuck the U.S. U.S. doesn't have anything I need except what's what little is left in my family. Um, a lot of guys don't have that. So, this is giving you a little bit of a baseline as to where I come from, why I left. Uh, next episode, I'm going to finish up my background won't take too long. And then we're going to go straight into why I chose to go where I did, how I got there, what my first day was like, what my second day was like, what my first month was like, and right on through it. Girls and all. <laughs> There's too many guys who, who come here just for that, and that's stupid. That's stupid. Um... Well, no, it's not. No, it's not. It's it's just it's just going to be a hundred and twenty-three times harder to find a good one than you ever dreamed it would be. That's the problem. But we'll go through that step by step by step by step with uh, 
tales and uh, facts and observations and clues and hints and how to live here. That's what this is about for people who think they might want to. And uh, this is going to change some minds. There's going to be some guys who think they want to, but then they're going to learn, oh, fucking Jesus Christ, no, I don't think I want to live there. Oh, you know, Oregon's not so bad. Uh, okay, so that's fine. It's fine. It'll help you uh, learn and decide. Good things and bad things, good points and bad points, but I'm still here 10 or more years, whatever it's been, and I... I went back to the U.S. for the first time last winter and then on to Ukraine and Romania in that region. And uh, that just finished the U.S. for me. I went back to do some visiting and my health wasn't all that good. And uh, I won't say it was a waste of time going back because it taught me once and for all that America's done. It's done for me. It's done. I always thought, all, all those years I was in Southeast Asia, I thought, well, you know, if it really gets fucking terrible, I'd just go back to the U.S. Well, now that's not an option for me. I, I learned last winter, last fall and winter, I learned to hate it so badly. And, and I'll tell those stories, you know, much later on in the, in the podcast. But, um, fucking hell. It's a, it's a null point for me. America's a null point for me now. And most of the guys here, anywhere in Southeast Asia, that's how they feel. They're just tired. They're just tired of the bone of the fucking bullshit pestering and the harassment and the cops who will shoot you and the governments who will steal from you. And but we'll go through that little by little. So you'll learn it. You'll learn it bit by bit and fact by fact and opinion by opinion. Okay, so we're done for this. We're, we're an hour and 30. I don't like to go over that no matter what. So, okay. Thank you very much. <laughs> Good evening. And, oh, before I sign off, if you like alien stuff, go to alienanalprobe.com. We got two or three, maybe close to 300 podcasts on there now, only about aliens and creepy shit like that. And uh, whatever, there'll be a link to these on that page also, so you can find these. Okay, thank you very much, and good evening, and good night. Where the hell is, where's my camera? There it is.